Chapter 13 of Bonaparte in Egypt and the Egyptians of Today. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham McMillan. Bonaparte in Egypt and the Egyptians of Today by Haji A. Brown. Chapter 13 The Siege of Cairo. It was the middle of June, 1799, before Bonaparte got back to Cairo from Syria. His prolonged siege of Acre had been an utter failure and save for a little worthless loot the whole expedition had been but a sample of that which his whole life was to be a selfish reckless waste of human life useless unprofitable and in spite of the servile adulation at his head entirely contemptible that this man was personally brave skilful in war a clever general in short that he was a man of many abilities that rightly exercised would have entitled him to respect and admiration is perfectly true but it is not more true of him than of many that the world has rightly and properly agreed to class as criminals. Seeking nothing but his own gain, in this futile expedition he had sacrificed thousands of lives, wrecked hundreds of innocent homes. More than a third of his army had perished, including twelve hundred of his sick and wounded, abandoned to the vengeance of the enemy for his own ruthless slaughter of his prisoners. Such is the great hero of modern civilization." but defeated and discomfited as he was he entered cairo in triumph with banners flying drums beating and all the rest of the idle fanfarade and pompous puerilities associated with triumphal entries five long hours the grand procession occupied in passing through the city gates and thenceforth for three days and nights his coming was celebrated with loud rejoicings and feastings and the egyptians looked on and even took such part in the hollow mockery as they were commanded to do but they were in no way deceived the gaunt skeleton of defeat and failure was clothed but not concealed by the gaudy glare of lying pretense so the great bonaparte paid honour to himself heedless of the droning of the surges on st helena's distant shore a month later the long-expected turkish army arrived by sea and landing at ubu kir on the fourteenth of july was besieged by the french under bonaparte himself on the twenty fifth although aided by sir sidney smith who was in command of a fleet that had already assisted in the defence of acre the Turks, defeated by starvation, had to yield on the 2nd of August. The news of the arrival of the Turks had been received in Cairo with unbounded joy, though none but a few of the hot-headed lower classes had given any open expression to their feelings. But when Bonaparte returned to the city, with the long file of Turkish prisoners, the despondency of the people was overwhelming. Yet though it was felt by all to be a rebinding of the chains of their bondage, they gave no sign, and the life of the town went on in the listless way that was becoming habitual to it it was easier for the people to bear this reverse that they by no means looked upon it as in any way a final one the defeat of the turks was but the defeat of a small force taken at great disadvantage and one which they did not doubt was but the advance guard of an army against which the french could make no stand meanwhile the period of the inundation having arrived the rising of the nile was celebrated by order as it had been the year before but this time with an abandon on the part of the christians that gravely shocked gabarty who tells us that the eve of the fetwayas spent by them in boats on the river or in the open along its banks with feasting and drinking and women and music on this occasion he writes they forgot their self-respect and cast modesty aside for indecency raillery impudence and impiety the pen refuses to paint the scandals of the night license was carried to its extreme and the dregs of the people following the example set them the debauchery and effrontery were without limit all night the bacchanalian festival was continued the outrageous orgy ceasing only with the utter exhaustion of the degraded devotees of pleasure some four days later bonaparte gave a fresh proof of his greatness by deserting the army that had served him so faithfully 
and, abandoning his dream of founding an eastern empire, hastened back to Europe to pursue with unabated enthusiasm his own selfish ambitions. His departure, like his coming and all his stay, was accompanied by the silly rigmarole of braggart falsehoods that he was never tired of issuing, and which deceived no one but himself. He was going, so he said, to open communications with France, and was to return in three months to exterminate the enemies of order. Under General Kleber, whom Bonaparte had named as his successor in the command of the French army, matters went smoothly enough, although he was less affable in his treatment of the natives than Bonaparte had been. He, like all the French, was heartily sick of the country, and longing for an opportunity of escaping from it. The first glamour of the occupation had long since passed away, and the dreary monotony of their lives, coupled with the debilitating effect of the climate, needed only the cowardly desertion of their chief to plunge the French into a state of deep despondency. The task entrusted to General Kleber was one, therefore, sufficient to try the ablest, and it was not lessened by the complete destruction of trade and commerce, the heavy expenses of the army, and the difficulty of dragging any further large supplies from the impoverished people. It is not surprising, therefore, that when the arrival of a Turkish army from Syria was announced, the general hastened to accept the offer of the English admiral to give the French army a safe and honorable opportunity of retiring. A convention was signed by which it was agreed that the French were to evacuate the country within three months. This being promptly made known to the Egyptians, the people rejoiced openly and without restraint, the lower classes going so far as to insult and abuse the French to their faces, to the great indignation of Gabardy, who does not fail to condemn their conduct not only as foolish but as unworthy of a self-respecting people. A few days later a Turkish officer arrived and was received with rapturous acclamations. The day following, the vizier Yusef, who was in command of the Turkish forces, issued his first orders to the people through the mouth of the officer they had thus cordially welcomed. Nothing could well be briefer or more explicit than these orders. They were but two in number, and were first that the people were to receive the officer in question as chief of customs, with the power of establishing monopolies of all food supplies, and secondly, the immediate raising of a sum of three thousand purses, to be paid to the French as a contribution towards the expenses of their evacuation of the country. Thus, says the always candid Gabardy, from the first moment the country had to suffer two evils at the hands of the Turks. But the tax levied was quickly collected, the people paying gladly to hasten the departure of the French. Blessed be the day on which the infidel dogs quit us, was the cry raised, loudest of all by those who had most availed themselves of the presence of the French to indulge in a laxity of living offensive to all the better classes. Notwithstanding the reminder the people had so promptly received that the Turks, however much they were to be preferred to the French, were by no means lenient rulers, the rejoicings for their comings were universal among the Muslims, and though there were not a few of the more enlightened and sensible who were wise and bold enough to protest against the offensive treatment of the French, the current of popular feeling was too strong, and carried with it even men who had heretofore kept their heads. So once more the children of the schools were led by their masters through the streets, as they had been at the first arrival of the French chanting songs in derision of, or of malediction on, the hated Ferengis. But if the Muslims were exultant, the Christians of the town were plunged in despondency, and were keenly lamenting the folly that had led them to outrage Muslim sentiment in the manner they had done. Fearful that in the excited state of the people these would now seek to avenge the wanton insults that had been offered them, they withdrew from the streets and public places, and hid in their houses, awaited in trembling fear the attack they anticipated would be made upon them. But the people were thinking of other things, and were too full of joy at the promise of their early escape from the bitter thraldom of the French to have a thought to spare for the minor grievances which they had endured from their Christian countrymen. And so these were left in peace. 
Meanwhile, small parties of the Turkish troops began to enter the town, and these, according to a pleasant custom that survives in the Turkish army up to the present day in outlying parts of the empire, at once proceeded to constitute themselves partners in the commercial affairs of the people, without the aid of notaries or anything more than the very simplest of procedures. Seating themselves on the mustabas, or raised fronts of the shops that serve at once as seats for the customers and counters for the display of the shopman's goods, they simply waited until a customer arrived, and then demanded from the shopkeeper a share of his profits, alleging, not always untruthfully, that they had assisted in the sale of the goods by praising their quality, cheapness, and so forth, and, when a customer appeared unconvinced, not unfrequently by threatening him with violence should he refuse to complete a purchase. Needless to say, customers and dealers alike soon learned to shun the transaction of business in the presence of these partners. Complaints were made to the new governor of the town, but the only satisfaction accorded to the indignant plaintiffs was that they ought to be pleased at the opportunity of contributing to the upkeep of the troops that had come to defend them from the French and free the country from their infidel rule. Eager as the people were to be rid of the French, these were not less so to get away from a town that no longer had any charm for them and was associated with so much of disappointment. The work, therefore, of preparing for the evacuation was carried on with good will, and the citadel and the forts around the town were handed over to the Turks, while the French assembled themselves in camps in and about the Izbikia. The three months allowed for the evacuation was drawing to a close when the folly of the British government suddenly altered the whole position. The convention, which Sir Sidney Smith had accorded the French, had been drawn up on a thorough understanding of the actual facts with which he had to deal. Knowing well that it was entirely out of his power to dictate terms to the French, and realizing how greatly it would be to the advantage of his own country that the French should retire, he had treated with Kleber rather as a friend than as an enemy. But the government, with absolutely nothing to guide it but Sir Sidney's report, declined to listen to his advice or to accept the action he had taken, and ordered him to insist upon the French making an unconditional surrender. A wiser and stronger man than Sir Sidney would have ignored instructions so fatal to the honor and interests of his own country, and so gratuitously insulting to brave and honorable foes. But, to the great misfortune of all concerned, Sir Sidney had not the courage to do justice to himself, and so communicated the decision of the government to General Kleber. The blow was a bitter one. Honorable as the convention he had accepted had been, it had demanded some sacrifice of pride on the part of the French to adopt it, and Kleber was perfectly justified in terming the demand now made insolent. Thus the madness of our government at the moment when the French were straining every nerve to leave the country forced them to remain, and not only gave them fresh and good reason to detest us, but laid a train of anti-English feeling in Egypt that bears consequences prejudicial to English interests even to the present day. Finding his hope of an early return to Europe thus shattered, Kleber took the only line of action open to him, and showed his ability as a general by immediately re-entering the forts around the city which the Turks, finding a residence in the town itself more in accordance with their ideas of comfort, had neglected to occupy. This done, he hastened to attack the Turkish army, which was encamped at Materia, some five miles from the town, and taking it by surprise, and wholly unprepared for action, believing itself in peaceful and unthreatened possession of the country, routed it with ease and without loss. This attack was naturally regarded as a most treacherous one by the Turks and Egyptians, for until the French had actually opened fire upon the Turks, these had remained in careless security, without the least suspicion that anything could occur to bring them into conflict with the French. But it is quite impossible to blame Kleber. For the French, an early and complete victory was now a matter of life and death. To have given the Turks an opportunity of attacking them in the forts around Cairo would have been suicidal madness. 
with no possibility of relief they could only have held out against a siege until the sickness and famine that were bound to assail them should have accomplished the work of the enemy more effectually than its military strength could as the time fixed for the evacuation had approached the excitement in the town had increased but when the french re-seized the forts and gave other proofs of a sudden activity and a new and to the egyptians wholly inexplicable direction rumors of the wildest kind were circulated of these the one that gained most credence was that the french had discovered it to be the intention of the turks and the english to surround and massacre them while on their way to the coast utterly false as this report was the outbreak of hostilities between the french and the turks gave it such apparent verification that there were not a few of the egyptians who still believe it the turkish army utterly discomfited by the french after having made but a poor defence took the road towards syria with the exception of a part which finding itself between the french and the town decided to seek the shelter of the latter with these were a number of mameluk beys and their followers who at the first news of the arrival of the turks had hastened to join them the turks who thus entered the town were under the command of nasu paka a bigot and fanatic of high rank but little ability his arrival was greeted by the assembling of a crowd of all the worst characters of the town who flocked after him as he made his way through the streets anxious to learn the truth as to what had happened his first act was to give a general but definite order for the massacre of all the christians we have seen how at the last meeting of the mameluk diwan and again at rosetta proposals to massacre the christians had been rejected now however there was no question of a proposal but a distinct and definite order was given by a paka a turk an orthodox moslem a high officer of the empire and one who at the moment carried with him all the weight of being the immediate representative of the sultan and caliph of islam those of the people to whom the order was given were of the lowest and most ignorant class precisely the one to which such an order might be expected to be welcome people having nothing to risk but their personal safety and thinking little of this as weighed against the prospect of a rich harvest of loot a wild rush was made therefore for the christian quarters of the town the mob slaying on its way the few christians who happened to be overtaken by it and unable to escape hastily barricading their doors and windows the christians made a bold stand and the mob which was much more anxious to plunder the houses than to slaughter their inhabitants devoted their unwelcome attentions to the least protected of these and troubling nothing as to whether the houses attacked were those of christians or moslems were busily engaged in their work of destruction when the quarters in which they were were swept by turkish troops who without staying to expostulate or explain quickly routed the rioters with much heavier slaughter than these had been guilty of and charging them more ruthlessly and more effectively than had charged the christians promptly restored order this vigorous suppression of the riot and intended massacre was the work of osman aga an officer of the turkish army who though of less degree than nasu paka had no sooner heard of the riot than he protested not merely by word of mouth but by the more practical measure of dispatching troops in hot haste with strict orders to spare none of the rioters that did not at once desist thus once more the christians found moslem protectors ready to defend them against moslem foes we shall see later on how the christians showed their gratitude the riot having been thus promptly suppressed the turkish officers turned their attention to the defence of the town from the attack by the french which they rightly judged would not long be delayed a hurried survey of the available means of defence showed that these were of the poorest gunpowder and munitions of all kinds were deficient in quantity and defective in quality but there was no thought of submission to the coming foe and directed by the troops the people were set to work once more to barricade the entrances to the town the memories of the sufferings that had accompanied and followed the great revolt against the french were still vivid in the minds of the people 
but their enthusiasm was as great as it had been while yet the horrors of a siege were unknown to and undreamt of by them some of the mamaluk chiefs seeing how woefully the town was deficient in the things most urgently needed to enable it to make a stand were anxious to withdraw but neither the turkish troops nor the people would consent to their doing so and they had perforce to remain and take their part in the defence fighting was commenced by an attack upon the house of elfi bey in the Izbekia quarter which bonaparte having chosen as his residence was still in the occupation of the french one day's firing having exhausted the supply of cannon-ball the defect was made good for the moment by charging the guns with metal weights collected from the shops in the bazaars and such other missiles as could be found under the direction of osman aga shot and powder factories were established and all the craftsmen of the town whose skill could be applied to the manufacture of defensive arms or materials were put to work to provide what was needed or the best substitute that could be improvised being unable to ascertain anything of the movements or intentions of the french the chiefs decided that it was imperatively necessary to be ready for an assault upon the town at any moment orders were given therefore that all the townsmen as well as the troops were to take up positions behind or near the barricades and were to remain on the spot day and night sleeping as best they could at their posts for eight days the fighting was continued in this way the firing being confined to the northwest end of the town or that facing the position occupied by the french on the eighth day the return of general kleber who had been in pursuit of the flying turkish army brought about a change with the troops he had with him and those already in garrison he had a force quite equal to the siege of the town in regular form and he lost no time in surrounding the two towns cairo and bulak as gabarty expresses it as a bracelet encircles the arms thenceforth the siege was carried on with vigour amply provided with arms and ammunition the french poured a ceaseless hail of shot and shell upon the towns not only from the forts around but also from the heights of the mokattam hills which command the greater part of the city of cairo for ten days and nights the siege and bombardment went on unceasingly for ten days and nights the people and the troops were without any rest worthy of the name and the long strain was beginning to tell upon their energies to add to the horrors of the bombardment under which the buildings of the town were steadily crumbling away and filling the streets with their ruins not only was death busy but hunger and thirst were beginning to assail the living food was not only scarce but what there was was ruthlessly appropriated by the turkish troops and the water was not only short but bad still all ranks kept manfully to their task and while the lower classes laboured cheerfully at what work there was for them to do in clearing the streets of the wreckage that threatened to block them entirely and in attending upon the troops carrying ammunition to and fro as needed and so on the highest of the turks and egyptians moved constantly among them encouraging them and bidding them hope for the best of the christians many had escaped from the town to seek shelter with the french in whose ultimate triumph they had the fullest and withal most justifiable confidence of those that remained in the town not a few lent what aid they could to its defence partly to conciliate the mob and partly no doubt in recognition of the protection given them by the leaders of the people as evidence of their loyalty to the sultan and as the line of conduct most likely to conduce to their own interests many who under the mamelukes had grown wealthy and under the french had escaped having to bear anything like their fair share of the burdens laid upon the people now bid for popularity by contributing funds toward the defence but the steadily growing weakness of their position the exhaustion of the people and the troops and the prospect of an utter failure of food and other supplies compelled the leaders to think of making terms with the french while they were yet in a position to profit from whatever concessions they could obtain and the french knowing pretty well how things were going in the city and having no desire for useless bloodshed made repeated offers to treat 
but the people would hear nothing of a surrender, and nothing of treating for terms. They had had enough of the French, and would have no more of them, if by any means, by any sacrifice, they could get rid of them. The Turkish vizier, with his army, was sure to come to their relief soon, and perhaps the English, for were not the English the enemies of the French? And Murad Bey, with a large force of Mamluks and troops, was not far off, and he too must come sooner or later to their aid. So they would rather starve and thirst and suffer until help came. And besides, was it not evident that the French must be nearly exhausted? If not, why did they offer terms? At last the chiefs took action for themselves, and a deputation of sheikhs was sent out to the French headquarters to treat for terms. Kleber received the deputation courteously, but reproached them for having taken the part of the Turks and given these their aid and support. The sheikhs very justly replied that they had but followed the advice he had himself given them when announcing the approaching departure of the French. Eventually it was agreed that there should be a truce of three days to enable the Turkish troops and all who cared to go with them to leave the town. As to the people, said Kleber, they have nothing to fear. Are they not our people? Full of hope and joy at the result of their mission, the sheikhs returned to report what they believed would be accepted as good news by the famine-stricken garrison. But far from accepting the terms offered, the people insulted the sheikhs and denounced them as traitors. If, said they, the Christian dogs were not at the end of their resources, they would not be so ready to make peace. So fighting was resumed and carried on on both sides with vigor until the 25th of April. Bulak was the first to fall. A heavy thunderstorm had broken over the devoted towns, and torrents of rain had quickly converted their unpaved streets into quagmires that rendered walking almost impossible. With abundance of skill and material at their disposal, and in robust health and spirits, the French had every advantage over the famished, exhausted, and undisciplined mob that had so long faced them at such desperate odds. Yet it was but foot by foot only that they succeeded in forcing their way to victory through streets heaped with the bodies of the slain. It was a heroic fight, that of this poor, famine-pinched, undisciplined mob against the well-fed, well-clothed veterans of France. Strange that our friends, the historians, who were always so impartial and free from bigotry and fanaticism, can see in this desperate defense nothing more than the contumacy of an ignorant and foolish people. Strange, for after all, how can man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of their gods? For this, in the very literal sense of the words, was what these poor starving Egyptians were doing, it being not the least of their complaints against the French that these had desecrated the graveyards of the city and defiled the temple in which they worshipped God. A wild carnival of pillage and brutality followed the fall of the town, and then the troops that had been investing Bulak turned with revived appetite to assist in the siege of Cairo. There, as at Bulak, the scarcity of food and water, and the want of proper rest and shelter, had reduced the people to a condition that would have justified their abandoning the hopeless struggle without further effort. Yet it was not the people, but their chiefs, the Mameluk Beys and the Turkish officers, men whose experience told them how unavailing the attempt to hold out must prove, that spoke or thought of treating with the foe. They had, as we have seen, already made an effort in that direction, now, finding that the French gradually gaining ground, pushing their way slowly but surely into the town, and, to add fresh terrors to those by which the unhappy defenders were almost overwhelmed, firing the houses as fast as they could reach them. The chiefs once more asked for terms, and were accorded three days in which to quit the town. Even then, the people would have refused to yield, and it was with difficulty that their leaders at last forced from them a sullen and unwilling submission. Kleber, in addition to granting the Turks and Mamluks three days within which to evacuate the town, undertook to supply funds and transport to enable them to go, but demanded the exchange of hostages. 
all who wished were to be free to depart with the retiring troops these were liberal terms but still the people were unwilling to submit and when the french hostages arrived they had to be protected by a large body of the turkish troops and even osman aga himself who throughout the siege had been foremost in the defence and ever where danger was thickest even he had to seek protection from the wrath of the mob that still furiously cried out against the admission of the french at length peace and order having been restored the turks and mamelukes made haste to leave the town and a general amnesty having been proclaimed cairo was once more treated to a grand triumphal entry of the french and was once more directed to decorate and illuminate itself in token of rejoicing for the third time the people settled down to bear the rule of the french with what patience they could and in the manner that still characterizes their daily lives the quarrel of the moment having been abandoned they let it sleep and went about their affairs as much as possible as if nothing had ever occurred to interrupt them not that they were in the least reconciled to the french or that they had ceased to long for redemption from the slavery in which they were held far from that but loyal to the terms they had accepted they desisted from all open or indeed covert opposition it would have been unreasonable to ask or expect more than this so the truce having once been made the french though they did not think so were absolutely safe from any molestation or annoyance from the people who as a body with all their faults fear god and obeying the law of islam observe their covenants even when made with an enemy one might have thought that this people who had so strenuously resisted the making of peace who had turned against the most trusted of their own leaders for accepting terms who in the hope of rendering peace impossible had frantically attempted to attack the hostages one might have thought that this people would have repudiated the terms and have sought every opportunity to injure and annoy the french nor could they with any reason have been held altogether blamable in refusing to abide by terms made in direct opposition to their wishes yet this is as i have said just what they did not do and peace once established the french went about among them as safe and as free from molestation as though the people had no grievance against them let us turn now and see how the french interpreted the amnesty they had accorded the people End of chapter 13, The Siege of Cairo. Recording by Graham McMillan, San Diego, California, 2012.